0: Amen. Well, good morning again. If you weren't here earlier, my name is Travis. i the pastor here, and it's uh, it's good to be with you. Uh, we are continuing on in our, our current sermon series that we are calling The Church, The Gospel Made Visible. Uh, and this is all about us laying a solid biblical foundation as we launch out as a new church in the new year. So for those that might not know, uh, we've been a campus of First Baptist Covington for a number of years, uh, but we in January are launching out as a brand new church plan. And and we've set the date. Our official launch date is Sunday, January 30th. I hope you've been praying for that, excited about that. And on that Sunday as well, we're going to start a brand new series going verse by verse through the New Testament book Of Acts, we hope you can join us for that. Hope you'll be here. Uh, But today we're going to continue on, like I said, through this series. And we've been looking at more of the the practical aspects of what it means to be the church, to gather together as the church. What does that look like, practically speaking? Like we said, our our goal is we want to do this according to God's ways, right? Like if we want to set out and build a church, we could do it either in our own image. We can do what we want, what we think is best. uh, But that will not be good. That will not end up well for us. We want to be a church that bases everything on Jesus. Jesus, and his word. So that's what we're doing. That's why we're spending so many weeks digging into these passages, um, we're going to continue on with that today. Uh, But as we start off, I got a question for everybody. How many of you in here hate change? Any kind of change? You don't like it? Not a fan of change? It's okay. This is a safe place. You can admit that. It's all right. Raise your hands high. So all of you love change. I don't believe that, but I'll trust you. I'll take you at your word. So everybody in here loves change all the time. Everything can change. You just love it. You're just all super flexible. That's what I'm getting? Okay, whatever. We'll see. I am typically like that. Typically I'm a person that that is okay with change for the most part, uh, depending on what it is. But there are some things um, that I am not so flexible about. Uh, maybe some of you can relate to this, but never mind. No, all of you love change, so nobody's gonna be able to relate to this. I'm gonna be on my own, so y'all pray for me. Um, one of the things that I don't love changing is is where and how I sleep. All right, I don't like that. I like sleeping in my own bed, in my house. I even I have a specific pillow that I like to use. I don't like to use any other kind of pillows. I even have a, a pillowcase. I don't like to use any other pillowcases? have this one pillowcase. I know you think I'm crazy. BJ's already looking at me like there is something wrong with you. There is, and y'all can help me with that. But that's one of the things that I'm like I'm very rigid about that. My wife makes fun of me all the time about that. Even last night, I'm putting the pillowcase on. She's like, "You don't want to use another one." I'm like, "No, this is my pillowcase. This is the one I use." So, anyways, this week uh, we we took a trip to Nashville, Tennessee. This was the the kids are. We have three kids: uh, Zayden, who's six; Livy is five, and and our youngest, Mila, is ten months old. So we loaded everybody up in the car. This was their Christmas gift for the year. We went up to Nashville, stayed at the, uh, the Grand Ole Opry hotel resort thing that's up there. Took the kids, I got a bunch of Christmas stuff going on up there. So we went up there Wednesday and Thursday. And so I don't, again, I don't like to change where I sleep. So anytime I'm sleeping in a hotel, Airbnb, whatever it is, like I just, I already don't sleep great anyways. That's probably why I don't like changing this. And then in a new place, anything changes. Again, I, I just don't sleep. Same with our kids. Like, none of us sleep anywhere we go. But anyway, we travel up to Nashville, and all five of us are in this hotel room. We got the baby in a pack and play, and there's two, like, queen beds set up. So, uh, Kendra and our son Zayden are in one bed because they sleep, like, solid. They don't move at all during the night. And then me and my my middle daughter, Livvy, are in one of the beds because she's got my sleep habits. Poor girl. So, she just tosses and turns all throughout the night. I did not realize how bad it was, though, until we started to go to bed on the first night there, and I find myself in the middle of the night every few minutes, just getting kicked every moment. Just like I don't know what she's doing tonight. She's fighting somebody or doing something, but just like full on, as hard as this little girl can, just kicking me the whole night. I don't even know what's going on. At one point, I found her like burrowed under the covers, like a little groundhog going into her home, like just straight up, like halfway down the bed. I'm like, what? What is happening? What are you doing? And then at one point again, she woke up and she was completely sideways on top of the covers, with like her leg propped up as if you would be like sitting in a chair and you kind of like cross your leg one on top of the other. Sit like her legs were up, cross in the middle of the night, laying flat sideways on top of the covers. So, like there is something wrong with this child. I don't know. I have to lay hands on her and pray this demon out of her. I don't know what's going on, but something is happening. This poor kid is not sleeping. And then she'd wake up like, "Libby, how'd you sleep? Oh, I slept fine." Like if that was a good night's sleep, I would hate to know what a bad night's sleep is for you. There's, no, I didn't sleep at all. How are you sleeping in this? So anyways, it's just, you know, things change like that. And like, everybody's just struggling. Mila, who normally sleeps to like 7.30 is like waking up at 6.30, sees everybody in the room and just thinks it's time to party and play right away. It's like, oh, this is great. So anyways, we had a good time, but the sleep was a little rough because again, I, I don't like change and our kids don't seem to like that changes well. And that's what brings us to our passage today. And you're like, whoa, we're talking about sleep today? No, I know, I know. We're not. But we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 10. So you have your Bibles, go ahead to turn to Hebrews chapter 10. And what we're going to look at is how through the work of Jesus, through what Jesus does for us on the cross, He changes things. He changes things. He changes so much. He changes our relationship between us and God, and He changes our relationship with one another. So through Jesus, through what Jesus does for us on the cross, He changes everything. So that's what we're going to be looking at today. So again, if you have your Bibles, Hebrews chapter 10, we're going to hang out in verses 19 through 25. So again, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn there. Uh, If not, we'll have the verses on the screen behind me. If you don't own a Bible, uh, we have Bibles in the back on this table. I would love for you to take one of those as our gift to you. Take that home with you today. But we're going to be hanging out in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 25. And as you're turning, let me just give you a little background on Hebrews. Hebrews is my favorite book of the entire Bible. I love the book of Hebrews. Uh, It's a letter written by somebody. We have no idea who wrote it. it. lots of theories out there. I kind of nerd out on that kind of stuff. I won't bore you with those details though, Uh, but we don't know who wrote it, but somebody wrote it and they wrote it to Jewish Christian, hence the name Hebrews. So they wrote it to Jewish Christians who are facing intense persecution. I mean, people are getting just killed and martyred for their faith all the time. So intense, crazy persecution at this time. And this author writes to these Christians to encourage them in their faith, to say, continue on, press forward, fight for your faith, fight, hang on to Jesus during these moments. So he's writing to encourage them in their faith. And what we find in our passage today, it's kind of like this, this transition moment in the book of Hebrews. So Hebrews 10, 19 through 25, it kind of summarizes several chapters of what the author was doing. So in, in chapters 4, through 10, the author is laying some sometimes really deep theological groundwork as to who Jesus is and what he's done for us. And then in the rest of the book, so so chapters 11, or the rest of 10, and then 11 through 13, it gets a little bit more practical. So it's kind of a transition moment where he's summarizing where we were before in these chapters, and then he's introducing his topics going forward for the rest of the letter. So just kind of give you some background as to what's going on. So uh, let me read this for us, and we're going to dig into it. So Hebrews chapter 10, starting in verse 19, says that, therefore, brothers, and as you're reading your Bible, let me, I know we've gotten two words and I'm already talking about something. I get it. Hang with me, though. So when you see therefore, that's a big deal. Like anytime you're reading scripture, when you see therefore, it should be this like red flashing light to say, hey, pay attention to what's going on here. This is important. So when you see a therefore, what you're, you should notice is that the author is about to, uh, based on what he has just said, He's going to draw some conclusions on that. He's going to give us some information. He's going to give us some commands. He's going to give us something to do based on what he just said. So that's important. When you see a therefore, it's a big deal. All right, let's keep going. I promise I won't stop every two, two words. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Verse 23 let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. Okay, so what we have here is the author saying, all right, based on who Jesus is, based on what he's done for us, I want you to do three things. I want you to do three things. And when you see the phrase, let us, and then something happens, that, that's a command in Scripture. The author is giving us three commands here. He's saying, let us, since we, since we have the confidence to, to come to God, to come in His presence, we should do three things. Let us draw near, let us hold fast, and let us consider one another. So that's our outline for today. That's where we're going. Let us draw near, hold fast, and consider one another. All right, so that first one that he tells us to do, let us, let us draw near. Let us draw near. The author is telling us, uh, his audience, by extension, us today. he's telling us because of what Jesus has done for us, here's what we are to do. First thing, draw near. We're to draw near. Look at what he says in verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. Okay, let me stop there because there's a lot happening in just those few words. There's a lot going on there in those few words. So let me just make sure that we're all on the same page here. So what, by, by what, him writing those, three, those few words there, let us, with confidence, because what Jesus has done for us, since we have confidence to enter the holy places, what he's doing is he's going all the way back to the Old Testament. He's going all the way back to the Old Testament and the sacrificial system we see in the Old Testament. All of those, what we think are really boring books of the Bible, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, they're really awesome and really good, some of my favorite parts of the Bible, really good stuff to dig into. That's what he's going back to. He's pointing all the way back to that. And this is what I love about the book of Hebrews, because what the author of Hebrews does is he says, look at, look at all of these things that happen in the Old Testament, all these things that we see in the Old Testament, and look how they were pointing forward to what Jesus would do for us on the cross. So here's what he's saying. When, he, when he's saying that we have confidence to enter the holy places, this is what he's talking about. He's talking about the temple, the sacrificial system, all of that stuff. So before Jesus came, before Jesus, who is God in the flesh, second person in the Trinity, before Jesus came to earth... What we had is God's presence was very limited. It was very limited to to certain people at certain times in certain places. One of the certain places where God's presence was limited was within the temple, and specifically with the Ark of the Covenant. You're like, man, I thought that was from an Indiana Jones movie. You're right, it is, but they stole it from the Bible, okay? They stole it from the Bible. It came from the Bible. So the Ark of the Covenant, we see the Ark uh, being commanded to the Israelites to build that all the way back in Exodus. With, with Moses leading the people out of Egypt, they stop in the desert, and God's like, hey, I want you to build this really big tent. I'm going to call it the tabernacle, and here's some things that I want you to build with it. So just keep that in mind. If we ever get to a point as a church plant where we're setting up and tearing down, just know that that's biblical, because that's what the Israelites did for 40 years in the deserts. They set up and tore down the temple of God, all right? So just know we're in good company if we ever get to that point. Maybe we won't, maybe we'll, we'll see. But anyways, the, the, the tabernacle was, was told to be constructed and they had these different parts of the tabernacle to help facilitate worship. And one of those things was the Ark of the Covenant. And God said, my, my presence will be symbolically dwelling with you with the Ark of the Covenant. So that was a symbol of God's presence. Now God, God's omnipresent, he's everywhere. So it's not like, oh, he was only with the Ark. No, but that, that was the symbol for God's presence with the people of God. So they had this this thing that symbolized God's presence, that that, uh, God was with them at all times. Remember, they had the ark, all that kind of stuff. And then we fast forward a little bit, and Solomon, uh, David's son, King David has son Solomon. Solomon builds the temple, builds the temple of God. And when he builds the temple, the way God has it constructed is the temple is kind of created with these. uh, As you go further into it, it's more limited access as you go forward. So the temple is built with what's called the outer courts. But that was the courts that were were open to Jews and Gentiles. Anybody could come to the outer courts. And then they had what was called the inner courts. And that was, it had this like half wall kind of set up blocking that off. And only Jewish people were able to go into the inner courts. And then you had the actual temple itself. And that was the sanctuary, the inner courts of that. Um, And then you had the holy place, which is where a lot of these things that you see, like the lampstand and the basin and all that stuff that you see being built at the end of Exodus. You see all that set up in the holy place. And then they had another part that was called the Most Holy Place or the Holy of Holies. And this was a, a section, a square blocked off with huge, thick curtains that went from ceiling all the way down to the floor. And in the Holy of Holies, that's where the Ark of the Covenant was. That's where the presence of God was. And here's the deal with the Most Holy Place. Only one person was allowed to go in only one person was allowed to go in, the high priest. There was a bunch of other priests and only one guy, one priest was allowed to go in and only he was allowed to go in one time a year. One day a year. One person, one day a year was allowed to enter into the most holy place, into the presence of God and that was on the Day of Atonement. So if you've heard you know, Yom Kippur, that's the Day of Atonement. We see this laid out in Leviticus 16. If you want to go read about that, that's the Day of Atonement. Now, why, why is that the case? Why was only one person allowed in the presence of God one time a year? Why is that? It's because of our sin. It's because of sin. See, so the Bible makes clear that, that every single person is a sinner every single person. What, what sin means is, is that, that we've all done, said, or thought things that go against God's standards. And if you just thought right now, nope, not me. Well, you just lied to yourself, so that counts. Now you're in the same boat as all of us, all right? So good news. Now we're all on the same page together. All of us are sinners. Romans 3.23 says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That word all, just let you know, it's some little Greek stuff going on. You, it means all. You're like, wow, that's really deep. I know, I know. It means all. Myself included, you included, everybody. Everybody is a sinner. We all do say and think things that go against God's standard. And God is a perfect, holy, eternal God and cannot allow sin to come into his presence. In order to come into his presence, you have to have perfection. So let's say that on the Day of Atonement, the the priest, you know, a couple weeks before, is like, you know what, let me just go in and check things out, make sure the ark is good, everything's where it needs to go, get things set up for the big Day of Atonement. If he were to do that, just even even a couple of days before, he'd walk in there, die immediately. Be dead. Because you can't just come into the presence of God. See, on the Day of Atonement, the, the priest, right before he went in, had to go through this intense purification process for his own sins. And if he messed up that, if he skipped a step or did something wrong, you go into the Holy holies. boom, you're dead. So he follows this intense purification process, and then he goes in and makes a sacrifice for the people of God, for the Israelites. He takes an unblemished goat, and he sacrifices that goat in order to cover or atone for or forgive the sins of the nation of Israel. That's what would happen on the Day of Atonement. That's the one day he was allowed in. And this goat, the reason they would sacrifice that is because it was symbolically representing everybody else in Israel. And what that goat did was that took the place of all the Israelites. That took the place. See, what we see in Scripture is that in order to have forgiveness of sins, you have to have a sacrifice. Even the author of Hebrews points this out. Hebrews 9.22 says, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. There's no forgiveness of sins. So the Bible also tells us, Romans 6.23, it says the wages of our sin is death, meaning what we deserve for our sins, what we earn because of our sins, is death. We deserve hell, wrath, punishment because of our sins. And because we sin against an eternal God, that punishment has to be eternal as well. The punishment has to fit the crime. So somebody has to die. With our sins, somebody has to die. Either us or somebody has to take our place. So with the sacrificial system, a a goat or a ram or a bull would take the place of you and your sins. Now, that was temporary, and we know that because these sacrifices had to happen over and over and over and over again. Every year, every Yom Kippur, the high priest going through that purification process, would sacrifice another goat. See, these sacrifices were meant to just temporarily cover the sins of the people. It wasn't full, it wasn't final, it wasn't complete forgiveness, So this is how it was throughout all of the Old Testament. Extreme, limited access to God. Temporary covering and atoning for our sin. Temporary forgiveness. Non-complete forgiveness for our sins. That was all throughout the Old Testament. But now, but now with Jesus, things change. Because of Jesus, things are different. And the author says, we now have confidence to enter into the holy places. We have confidence to come into the presence of God. That word confidence is a word that typically means, you know, just that confidence or boldness. Here it can be translated freedom to enter. You can kind of think of it, but before Jesus in, in God's presence and entering, coming into God's presence, there's this big no trespassing sign. No trespassing, if you come in, you're dead. But now through Jesus, that no trespassing turns into a welcome sign. All are welcome all are welcome. We can all come to Jesus. We have confidence to enter into the holy places. We have confidence to come into the presence of God. And and as the author says, how are we able to enter? Why do we have this confidence? Well, one of the things he says is by the blood of Jesus. The blood of Jesus, his sacrifice allows us to come in. Hebrews 9, 13 through 14 says this, if goats and bulls could temporarily cover, I mean, how much more does the perfect sacrifice of Jesus cover us? So he says we can come in through the blood of Jesus. He gave his life for ours. He took our place. We are the ones that should have died. We were the ones that were sinners. But he took our place. He shed his blood so that we wouldn't have to. So he says it's by the blood of Jesus we can enter. He also says that that because Jesus is our priest, he says uh, that we have this this great priest over the house of God. We have our our new high priest, Jesus. He's the perfect priest. We no longer have these, these sinful priests who have to purify themselves every single time before they come into the presence of God. No, we have the perfect high priest, Jesus, and he did the perfect work for us. Hebrews 7, 26-27 points it out this way. It says, For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins, then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself." Jesus offered himself once for all. He is the perfect high priest, and he is the perfect sacrifice. Never sin, complete perfection, and his sacrifice is complete. It is once for all. He doesn't have to continually sacrifice himself over and over and over again. No, he does it once for all, for all. He is the perfect sacrifice, and it's through the perfect sacrifice of Jesus, the perfect life of Jesus, that we can be made clean. He says here here that we we are to draw near with with what? We're we're to draw near with our hearts sprinkled clean, with a true heart, free from an evil conscience, our our bodies washed with pure water. We are are made clean. Through Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf, we are made clean. Clean. We are purified. We are washed clean and we are given complete and full forgiveness. Look at what Colossians 2 13 through 14 says. This Paul writing, he writes, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. So, one of the ways the Bible speaks of our sinful state outside of Jesus is that we are dead to our sins we're dead to our sins. And we're going to stay that way without somebody saving us. And that somebody is Jesus. So, so we were dead in our trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made alive together with him, that's Jesus, together with Jesus, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So what that means is when we put our faith in Jesus, we have complete forgiveness of our sins. Past, present, future sins, all forgiven by faith in Jesus. Complete, total forgiveness. We are made clean. And what's the purpose of all of this? What's what's the reason Jesus does all of this? Why does he do this? Why does he change these things? So that we can draw near so that we can come to him. Look again at verse 22. Since we have confidence to do these things, what are we supposed to do? What's the command? Let us draw near. Let us draw near. Let us draw near to God. I mean, can, can you just try to imagine being the high priest in the Old Testament? I don't know about you, but I would have been terrified getting something wrong and then stepping into the Holy of Holies. I mean, you can imagine what, what stress that would put on somebody? Man, did I do that right? Did I follow all the steps? Did I do these things? And now you're going to step in. I mean, the fear that we would have, stepping into the presence of God, knowing that if there was anything off, we'd be dead immediately. But now, through Jesus, we can draw near boldly. We can come boldly. We don't, we don't have to hide in our fear, in our shame, in our guilt, We don't have to worry if we're going to be accepted by God. If we're going to be good enough, we don't have to worry about cleaning ourselves up first before we come to God. That's not. That's not how it works. Praise God, that's not how it works because we'd have no hope then at that point, right? Because we're all sinners. We're all sinners. We're all stained by sin. So we're up to us to fix things. We'd be doomed. But instead, Jesus does all of this for us. He does all of this for us. We don't have to run and hide we can draw near. It says this in, in Hebrews 7.25, it says, consequently, he, that's Jesus, Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for us. See, Jesus wants us to draw near. He wants us to draw near. And when we draw near, when we come to him in faith and putting our faith and our trust in him to save us, to rescue us from our sins, to make us alive, what does it say there? He saves to the what? To the uttermost, completely, fully. Doesn't matter who you are. Doesn't matter what you've done. Doesn't matter what your past is like. Doesn't matter what your present right now is like. It doesn't matter. Jesus saves to the uttermost. He saves to the uttermost. Doesn't matter how bad we think we are. Doesn't matter how much guilt and shame we're carrying with us. He saves to the uttermost. He saves to the uttermost. And look, for those of you that that are a believer in Jesus, we we all stumble and fail in many ways. I'm not perfect. Just because I'm a pastor doesn't mean I have my life together. I, I I don't. I struggle just like everybody else. We all struggle with sin. And here's what the devil does. When we sin, what does he come and do? He comes with his lies and says, Travis, you said you were a Christian. You're a pastor. I can't believe you did that. I can't believe you said that. You should be ashamed of yourself. You should, you, you're a terrible person. How dare you say the? How dare you pretend to be a pastor or a Christian, whatever the case? How dare you do this stuff? See, what the enemy wants, he wants us to sit in our guilt and our shame, and he wants us to keep running away from God. See, that's a temptation. When we sin, when we stumble, we want to we turn away from God. And the enemy wants us to do that. He wants us to keep running. But what does Jesus say? Come here. Come to me. doesn't matter what you've done. doesn't matter how much we've dropped the ball, how much we've messed up. To those of you that, that are here that you might not have put your faith in Jesus, you might not be a believer. I want you to hear this. It doesn't matter what your life is right now. It doesn't matter how much you've done. It doesn't matter what your past is. It doesn't matter how bad you think you are. Jesus saves to the uttermost. We don't have to come to God and clean ourselves up. We don't have to try to rely on what we think are good works. Because again, if, if it were up to us, we'd be doomed. But thankfully, Jesus saves us, and he wants us to come to him. His arms are open wide all the time. It's no longer no trespassing. It's all our welcome at the feet of Jesus. So draw near. Draw near to God. Through Jesus, we have confidence to do that. So as the author says here, let us do that. Let us draw near. That's the first thing. Let us draw near. The second thing that changes with Jesus is is we're called to, to let us hold fast. Let us hold fast. Look again at verse 23. Verse 23, it says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. We are to hold fast. And that word hold fast means that you're to to hold tightly onto something, onto something or someone, especially gives this idea, especially of something that you believe in. You're, You're called to hold tightly to that. To persevere, no matter the, the ridicule, no matter what everybody else is saying, you're, you're gonna hold tightly to these things that you believe in. Now, that's the picture that we're given. So we're, we're to keep going. Or as you know, the, the theologians of the 1980s journey, don't stop believing, they were right about that. Don't stop believing. Now, that's what we're telling you. That's, you're like, man, that's a commit, yeah, they stole it from Scripture. Don't stop believing. That's what we're talking about here. Hold fast means don't stop believing. Now, what are we to hold fast to? What are we to hold on to tightly? He says, the confession of our hope. The confession of our hope. We are to hold tightly to our hope in Jesus Christ. Now, here's the thing about hope. We use hope all the time. We say we hope things all all the time, right? But but the definition of hope, how we use it, is very different than how the Bible uses it, okay? So when we use hope, it it carries with it a level of uncertainty, right? Like, you know, I I hope this happens. I, I hope... That you know the weather is nice today. Praise God it is. You know I hope that it doesn't get too cold. That's what I hope every single morning when I wake up. Please Lord, don't let it be too cold. Um, we we hope things and and we we say hope and we we have this idea of like I'm not really sure if it's going to work out or not. I mean every you know if you're an Atlanta sports fan here you know what that means. You you know like I hope you know hey the Braves won this time. You know praise God for that. You're like I hope the Georgia Georgia Bulldogs don't choke again. Well you know too bad they did. Sorry about that. Um, I don't yeah I don't have a I don't have a Bone in the fight here. I'm, I'm an NBA fan, so, uh, but I like poking fun a little bit at the George fans. So, uh, you know, we, we get this idea of hope, right? We understand that when I say I hope, it carries with it this level of uncertainty. But we can't carry that into our understanding of biblical hope. See, when the Bible speaks of hope, it means a guarantee. It means a guarantee. There is no uncertainty with hope in Jesus. So biblical hope is a guarantee that when we say, I put my hope in this promise of God, or I put my hope in Jesus, what we're saying is, here is I have full certainty, full confidence. I know 100% that this is going to happen. That's biblical hope. There is no uncertainty. It is a full guarantee. So with our hope in Christ, what that means is our, our hope in Christ means that we can believe with full confidence that Jesus is who he says he is and will do what he says he will do. We can have full confidence and assurance in that. No uncertainty. There's no, man, I, I hope this works out. I wish it will. No, it is, it is a done deal. It is a guarantee. That's biblical hope. And see, look at that. Hope isn't based on us, right? Like our hope in Jesus isn't based on, well, if I do X, Y, and Z, well, then I have hope. Then I have certainty. No, it's not based on us. It's not based on the things of this world. It's not, well, well, if, if these circumstances work out in this way, well, then I can have hope that the Bible means that, that, that this will happen according to Scripture. No, it's not based on us. It's not based on this world. It is based on Jesus. It is based on our God. It is based on His faithfulness. It says here, he who promised is faithful. That means that the promises of Jesus, he will uphold them. He will come through. He will deliver on his promises. He will do everything he says he will do. And we can have hope. We can have trust, confidence, a guarantee in these promises because it's not based on us. It's based on God. And he is faithful. He is always trustworthy. That's what that means. God always delivers on his promises. And this is the beauty of having scripture, because we can look back and see time and time again where God said, I'm going to do this, and he comes through and does that very thing. We have example after example of this. So our God is faithful. He will deliver on his promises. So here's what that means, church. Here's what that means. It means that we can trust that God will do what he says. We can trust God when he says that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and that the only way to come to the Father is through him. There is no other way. We can trust the Bible when it says that that Jesus is our only hope for salvation, you want to spend eternity with Jesus. You're hoping one day when you stand before God, he's going to let you into heaven. You hope that that's going to happen. You're like, man, I really want that to happen. And it, it, but the Bible says the only hope for that, the only way that's going to happen is through Jesus Christ. Not on you, not on your good works, not on just hoping things work out. That's, that's not what the Bible says. We can trust it, that, that this is how it's going to be. We can trust that when Jesus says, I will forgive you fully, I will save you to the uttermost, that he really means that that it's true. We can believe that. We can believe that when he says, I I will guide you and lead you through life, that we can trust that. We can believe in that promise. We can believe when he says that he's going to provide for us. We can believe when he says that he will always love and accept and approve of us, not based on what we've done, but all based on what Jesus has done for us. We can trust Him when He says that for those that believe in Him, for those that have put their faith in Him, we can trust Him when He says that we will spend eternity with Him in the new heavens and the new earth for all of eternity with complete perfection. No more sin, no more pain, no more suffering, no more evil, no more hardship, no more brokenness. We can trust that. We can believe that. We can look forward to that day. And we can also trust that He says for those that don't believe, We can trust him when he says, for those that don't believe, that they will spend eternity separated from him in hell forever. We can believe him when he says these things. We can trust his word. God always delivers on his promises. And we can put our full trust and hope in him. Now, why is the author of Hebrews saying you got to hold fast to that hope? You got to hold fast to that hope. It's because just like for his audience, the same with us today, there there are things in this world that are constantly pulling us away. They're constantly saying, no, trust in me. No, put your hope in me. No, no, I'll make your life better. Yeah, trust in me. Yeah, if you just do this, man, your life's going to be awesome. We're constantly pulled all over the place. I mean, we're coming up in in January. What's January? It's New Year's resolutions, right? You're about to be inundated, if not already, with commercial after commercial after commercial, billboard after billboard saying, hey, if you just you want a better life, do these things. You want to get out of debt, we'll just follow these five steps. You want to lose weight and be healthy, we'll do these three things and you'll be good to go. But that's the promise that we're given all the time, is these quick fixes in life. But what do we know about that? They're a lie. Those things aren't true. You want to get out of debt and get better financially? It takes hard work. It takes a lot of discipline. And sometimes, depending on your situation, it might take a long time. You want to get healthy, lose weight, be a healthier you, whatever that looks like? Guess what that takes? Discipline every single day. Which is why I keep eating tacos, because I'm not disciplined. (laughs) But we have these, these empty promises of the world constantly saying, no, no, trust me. No, come, come with me. Trust me. You want, you want that thing? You really want that thing? Well, come here. I'll, I'll give you that thing. I'll give you that. We're constantly pulled in these other directions. But they are empty promises. And look, here's the deal. They're not eternal. They don't last. Let's say you do get out of debt, and you have this wonderful financial future, and you are just in the best shape financially from here until you die. Can you bring any of that stuff with you? No, you can't. Let's say you get in the best shape of your life and you're just the most healthy person and that's what you're living for, that's what you're doing. Guess what's going to happen? You're still going to die. Your body, no matter how fit and perfect it might be, will eventually break down. None of these things are eternal. None of these things last. You know what does? Jesus. You know what we can trust in? His promises. His word what he says, not the empty promises of this world. This world is only going to leave you broken and disappointed, but Jesus doesn't. Jesus is the only thing we can put our full hope and trust in, and as the world comes calling, as we're pulled in all these different directions, what are we supposed to do? Hold fast. We're to hold fast to our hope in Jesus, constantly reminding ourselves, these are empty promises. These don't lead anywhere. I'm going to follow Jesus. I'm going to fix my eyes on you, Jesus. I'm going to focus on your promises, and I'm going to put my hope and my trust in you. So we are called to draw near to God. We're called to hold fast to our hope. And the third thing we're told here is we are to consider one another. we to consider one another. Look at verses 24 and 25. We'll end here for today. Verses 24 and 25, he says, "...and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near." So our final command here, based on what Jesus has done, we've already seen how he changes our relationship between us and God. And now we're going to focus on our relationship with one another. So Jesus says, based on what I've done for you, I want you to consider one another. I want you to consider one another. That word consider means to to think deeply about something or someone, to pay close attention to or, or to deeply care about something or someone. And what are we supposed to pay careful attention to? What are we supposed to care deeply about? We're to consider, care deeply about what? Stirring one another up towards love and good works. That's what we're supposed to do. Stir one another up towards love and good works. That that word for stir up means to provoke or or rouse to activity or or create some kind of reaction in somebody. So what, what the author is telling us here is we're to stir up other people, other believers, one another together, us together as the church. We're to stir one another up towards love and good works. That's exactly what it sounds like, love and good works. It means that we're to, we're to encourage one another. We're to, we're to push one another to live more and more like Jesus, to love God deeper, to love one another deeper. That's what we're supposed to do. We're to push one another towards deeper commitment to Jesus. That's uh, Pay attention, look out for one another, and encourage people. Stir one another up, push one another towards growing in their faith and knowledge and love of Jesus Christ and other people. That's what we're to do. Right off the bat, this means that we're to care about one another's spiritual condition. I'm not just supposed to care about my relationship with Jesus. I'm supposed to care about your relationship with Jesus. I'm to care deeply about that. I'm to consider that. I'm to think deeply about that. So I'm going to be as concerned for your spiritual condition as I am for my own. I need to constantly be asking myself, how how can I encourage, how can I push those around me towards deeper love of God and love of others? How, How can I encourage those around me to follow Jesus more and more every day? Now, how are we supposed to do that? What does that look like? Well, again, thankfully, we have scripture. The author here gives us two ways, a negative and a positive on how we're supposed to do this. The first thing he says there is, let me read it for us. Verse 25, not neglecting to meet together. That's the first way. How are we to stir one another up towards love and good works? We're to not neglect meeting together. That's meeting together, as the author refers to it. This, this is exactly what we're doing today. He's talking about the local gathering of believers. He's calling this weekly gathering of the church where we come together to worship Jesus, to serve one another, to love one another, to grow in our faith and knowledge of Jesus Christ. That's what he's talking about. He's talking about a church. And what's he say about here? Don't neglect meeting together. Don't neglect this. This matters. Our weekly gathering as the people of God matters. It's a big deal. It is a big deal. Our, Our weekly gathering coming together as the people of God matters for our spiritual growth. That's what he's talking about here. He's saying this is a significant part of your spiritual growth. This is a big deal, and we have to make it a priority. We have to make this a priority and non-negotiable with our families. We have to say, that whatever else is going on, doesn't matter, we're going to church. We're going to church because it matters, because it's a big deal. This is a significant part for how we're strengthened and encouraged as other believers, He says, what's our command here? To stir one another up towards love and good works. Now, how are we to stir one another up if we never see each other? Can't do it. Can't do it. If I'm the only one here on Sundays, I can only stir myself up, okay? And that's only gonna go so far, all right? I need other people. And you need other people. We need each other. Like we keep saying over and over again, we are in this life together. Jesus didn't save us and then put us on an island to live in isolation on our own. That's not how we design things. He designed us as relational beings. He put us in relationships with one another, in community. And one of those reasons is so that we can do this. So that we can encourage each other. So that we can stir one another up to love God all the more. And again, in order to do that, we've got to show up. We've got to be here. We've got to make this a priority. See, so we can't just, you know, make, uh, you know, church fit into our schedule, you know, because if we do that, if we let our schedule run the show, well, then church is going to get pushed off more often than not. Well, you know, I didn't have time for that. Oh, well, you know, I had to, I had to work this week. And oh, you know, we were, we were busy. You know, a lot going on this week. And so, you know, we're just going to take it easy on Sunday. We're just going to, you know, we're not, we're not going to go. We're just not going to go. It's not that big of a deal. It's fine. See, if we let our schedule run the show, this stuff is going to be pushed out. But instead, we have to start off saying, no, you know what? Church is a big deal. The weekly gathering matters. Coming here matters. We're putting that on the calendar first, and then we're going to work everything else around that. That's what the author of Hebrews is telling us here. And he makes it clear that if we neglect this, we are missing out on a big part of our spiritual growth. This is a big miss on our part. And look, here's the, just by showing up, just by showing up and coming here regularly, we're already walking in obedience to this, let us stir one another up command. Let us consider one another to stir one another towards love and good works. The first step is just simply showing up. And just by doing that, just by showing up, we're walking in obedience to this. So this is a big deal. This, this matters. This, this helps us grow and it helps other people grow. Again, just by showing up and being here. So just so you're not like, well, Travis, you just care about having a lot of people at the church. Well, yes, I do, because that means more and more people are hearing about Jesus. But let me just say this. Let me just say this. Find a church. If it's this church, praise God. We would love to have you. But if it's not, if the Lord's making it clear, you know what? He wants you somewhere else. You're already plugged in somewhere else. Praise God for that. Commit somewhere. If it's here, great. If it's somewhere else, I praise God for that too. I rejoice with you in that. Find somewhere where you can belong, where you know people and people know you, where people are looking out for you and your spiritual growth. Find a place like that. Again, if it's here, awesome. If it's somewhere else, praise God for that. Find a church, commit to it. Don't neglect this, okay? This is a big deal. All right, so the first way we encourage one another to grow in their relationship with Jesus is just by showing up, not neglecting meeting together. The second thing he says here is encourage one another. So what are we supposed to do when we gather, when we come together, when we show up? What are we supposed to do? We're to encourage one another. Encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. We're to encourage one another. Encouragement should be a regular part of gathering together as the people of God. What this tells us is when we come in on a Sunday, we should leave more encouraged than when we came in. That's what he's talking about here. See, it's not just, you know, just show up and then you, know, you, just, you just sit there and enjoy the service and then you go home. No, what are you supposed to do when you come? You're supposed to encourage people. Encourage one another. And we encourage people by what? But By showing up. We already talked about that. We encourage people just by being here. We encourage people by, by singing. By singing the praises of God, we encourage other people. We, we encourage people by serving. If you're not already serving, talk to me. I'd love to get you connected to one of our ministry teams so that you can serve using your gifts and passions to, to make a difference in the name of Jesus here. We, we encourage people by serving. We encourage people by, by just building relationships, by, by building relationships and going beyond the surface, going beyond the, hey, how you doing? Great, okay, cool, I'm gonna take you for your word and just move on. No, we, we take time to get to, one, to get to know one another, to build deep relationships with people, to get beyond the surface level. We encourage people by doing that. The easiest way to encourage people is to just use our words in an encouraging way. I mean, how, how many times have you had, you know, those people that just kind of ooze out encouragement? Like, you've had one conversation with that person, and it just, like, it lifts your spirits up. There's this guy that, that used to uh, come to the church I was at previously. He moved away uh, up in North Georgia now, but his name's Ron Guess, older gentleman and, and just encouraging all the time. I mean, you have one conversation with that guy and you'll feel like you can just take on the world. Like you'll just, I can accomplish anything after my conversation with Ron. Like that's the kind of guy he was. So it doesn't matter what my day was going like. It doesn't matter what was going on. It doesn't matter how stressed I was or how bad things were going. Man, if I had one conversation with Ron, all of that melted away. That's what just one encouraging conversation can do to somebody. It can automatically lift their spirits. How do we do this? I mean, it's, it's not difficult. It, it just takes some effort, right? It takes some intentionality on our part. It can be as simple as just noticing somebody like, hey, I see you. I see you. I see what the Lord's doing in your life, and I want you to know I, I appreciate that. That means a lot to me. Just simply noticing somebody, caring about somebody, letting somebody know that you actually care about them, that that one thing that they mentioned prayer for, like actually follow up with them, ask them how that's going, get updates. That shows that you're paying attention, that you care. That's encouraging. Let's be specific with our encouraging. Not like, hey, you're awesome, buddy. Love you. You're great. No, let's be specific. Let's ask ourselves, what are the evidences of God's grace that I see in that person? how do I see God at work in their life? How, how, are, how are they encouraging me? How are they ministering to me through their life, through their serving, through their words? How are, they, how are they showing and displaying the evidences of God's grace? Let me point that out so that I can encourage them in that. Let's be specific. Let's pray every time we come, every time we come to gather as God's people, let's pray and ask God for two things. Let's ask God to make us open and willing to receive encouragement, And then let's pray and ask God, how can I, with my words and actions today, how can I encourage somebody else? Let me be open to receiving encouragement, and let me be encouraging to somebody else. So let's ask God to do this every single time we gather. Look... There's a lot of discouragement in this world, right? It doesn't take much to get us down. You watch the news for 30 seconds, and the world's on fire, and every it's all bad, right? And it might be, and it probably is, right? Because sin is, is wicked and rampant and all over the place. So it can be really discouraging, especially in our current climate right now. It can be really discouraging. Lots of things can drag us down. So let's be a people that lift others up. Let's be a people. Let's be a church that is encouraging. Look, we all want to feel encouraged. We all want to be encouraged when we come together. We want to have, and I think everybody would agree, yes, we want to have a place where people say, hey, you know what? The church at Haynes Creek, that's an encouraging church. That's an encouraging place to be around. I think we all would want that. You know how that starts? You know how we make that happen? By being encouraging people. By being people that encourage others with our words, with our actions. So this third command that we're given We are to consider one another on how we can stir them up towards a deeper Christ-likeness. How we can stir one another up to love God and love others all the more. And how do we do that? We show up and we encourage people. We come, we gather, and we encourage people. That's how we do this. So through Jesus' sacrifice, through his life, death, and resurrection, he changes things. He changes things. Through faith in him, things change. He draws us to himself, and he draws us together as the people of God. He saves us. He gives his life for ours. He forgives us of all of our sins. He sets us free. He makes us alive. He gives us hope for a future. And the God of this universe that does all of that and more says, Come to me. Draw near to me. Through Jesus, we have complete and total access to God. So he draws us to himself, and he brings us together as the people of God. Again, we're not saved to do this life on our own, to just figure things out on our own. We are saved into a community. We are saved into a body. So let's be an encouraging one. Let's be an encouraging body. Let's be an encouraging church. One that that considers one another, that looks out for one another and stirs one another towards love and good works. Church, in a moment, I'm gonna pray. The band's gonna come, and as we we now do every single Sunday, every time we gather, we're gonna take a moment and celebrate the Lord's Supper, celebrate communion. So this is a time for any believer in here. You're a believer in Jesus. You put your faith in Jesus. This time is for you. So in a moment, I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray the band's going to come. The band's going to lead us in a couple of songs of worship. And church, I would encourage you, take a moment, prepare your own hearts. Maybe you spend some time just in prayer and worship to God. Maybe you need to repent of some sin. Maybe you've been running from God. And coming here today was your first step towards Him. Keep that going. Come to Him. Draw near to Him. Maybe you need to spend some time just in, in, in worship and praising God for what he's done in your life, for the salvation that he alone gives you. And then as you're ready, you can come to the tables on either end over here. So we've got one set up over here. We've got another one set over here with the communion elements. So as you feel led on your own, you come to the tables. You take the bread that represents God's broken body on the cross for you. And you take the cup representing Jesus' shed blood on your behalf. And then we worship our good God and Savior. Now, as I said, this is this is for believers only. This is for us specifically uh, to remember and celebrate and worship Jesus for what he's done for us. But if you're here and you're not a believer in Jesus, you've never put your faith in Jesus, first I want to say, man, I'm glad you're here. I love that you're here, and I want you to keep coming. We, we would love to have you be here with us every single week. I want you here. The other thing I would say is... Take a moment and just consider the words today. Consider what we've talked about, what we've seen in Scripture, what we see from Jesus, who He is, and what He's done for us. And I would encourage you, I would ask you, let let today be the day of your salvation. Let let today be the day that you stop running, that you stop living in your shame and your guilt, that you stop running from God in fear, that you stop relying on your own good works. If you're here and you're thinking, man, you know what? I'm just going to figure it out. And when I get before Jesus, I'm just going to, you know, hope that my good deeds outweighed my bad deeds. Just know it doesn't work like that. That's not how it works. We have to be completely perfect to come before God. And none of us can do that. But again, what we said here through Jesus, through faith in him, he makes us perfect. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He who knew no sin became sin so that we can have the righteousness of God, so that we can be made perfect, so that we can be made righteous. And in order to have that, in order to find complete forgiveness from all of our sins, in order to find salvation, the Bible says it's real easy. All we do is respond in faith to him. All we do is say, Jesus, I know I'm a sinner and I'm putting my trust in you. So in a moment, I'm going to pray, and if that's you here today, if you want to put your faith in Jesus, you just, you pray along with me. And look, it doesn't have to be magic words. You don't have to say these specific things in order for it to happen. That's not how it works. All you got to do is say exactly what we've been talking about. Jesus, I know I'm a sinner, and I'm trusting in you for my salvation. That's all you got to tell him. And when we do that, when we put our trust in him, he says that we are completely forgiven. Again, he saves to the uttermost. So that's you here today. I would encourage you, say that prayer. Say something to Jesus. Put your trust and faith in him. Come let us know. Let's, whoever brought you here today, let them know so we can celebrate with you. This is an exciting. It's an awesome day. Come take your first communion as a child of God. Let's worship together. Let me pray for us, church. Jesus, we thank you, Lord, for all that you've done for us. Lord, we thank you that that through your sacrifice, we have the confidence to draw near, that we can come freely before you, Lord. No matter what we've done, no matter how much sin, how much baggage we have, doesn't matter how bad we think we are, how much we think we've messed up, Lord, we can come to you. So Jesus, we thank you for that. We praise you for that. I pray for us say I pray for, for all of us here, Lord, that we would draw near to you, that we would hold fast to you, and that we would be a people that considers one another, that encourages one another. Jesus, give us the strength to walk in obedience. Lord, again, we thank you. We praise you. We give you all the praise, all the honor, all the glory for what you've done for us. Lord, thank you for saving us, Jesus. Lord, we praise you, we love you, and it's in your name we pray, amen.